Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Jeff Morris Jr. of Lambda School and Chapter One, and Henry McNamara of Great Oaks. Henry, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us and happy birthday. Thank you. Awesome to be here. Yeah, happy birthday, Eric. Awesome. I appreciate it. Excited to have you guys on and excited to chat about uh, consumer. So so Henry, why don't we start with you? You've been pretty active uh, in in the space. Uh, Why don't you talk about why and what within consumer has been so interesting to you and how that's evolved into where we are today? Where you're interested? Absolutely. In. So, you know, I've been, I've been at Great Oaks for just about seven years now. And, and in that time, I mean, the whole venture landscape has, has changed, you know, five, six times uh, pretty drastically. So, um, you know, we're, we're a generalist firm. So we're investing all across different realms of consumer and also across different realms of enterprise. So um, we've certainly invested in a handful of companies, you know, everything from consumer marketplaces, you know, to D2C products. So, you know, I think there's been a lot of attention on the direct consumer space in recent years and, and even in recent weeks. You know, what was interesting to us, I think, when we when we made a, uh, a number of investments in D2C was, you know, there was really an opportunity to use the D2C model to be able to scale more quickly. At, at a point in time, more efficiently, um, where you could, you know, acquire customers online for a fraction of the cost. You know, you could, you know, basically offer better, more compelling products to consumers at a lower price than, you know, you could through a third-party retailer. That is not necessarily the case anymore. So I think, you know, you're seeing right now play out this this change in D2C, which I don't think is the end of D2C. I think it's the, you know. Uh, I think it's a change in the types of companies that are going to get funded without getting into specifics. I think a lot of the companies you've seen that have been having trouble that are D2C companies um, are ones that were really selling pure commodities and and maybe you know thinking that their special sauce was really a, a superior digital advertising specialty versus their actual product. So one thing that we consistently and continue to focus on um, is, you know, if you're a consumer product company, product has to be where you differentiate. Um, trying to outperform other people, you know, through customer acquisition, uh, if you're paying to acquire customers, is never going to be a long-term viable model. So I think the way that we look at the world today, um, and I think this is still true, um, there's you know there's a lot of doomsayers in in the D2C world, and I think there will be a, plenty of blood, but you know that's expected in in any industry. Um, you know, not everyone is going to be supremely successful. I think you know it really comes back to product, and I think this is going to shift to a refocusing on you know product as a differentiator versus a business model. Um, and you know, D to C is is strictly a distribution method. It's not. I think sometimes D to C gets lumped together as you know the entire the entire business model of of many of these companies. But I think this this sort of you know re repositioning of how markets are valuing some of these companies, particularly when you're selling a pure commodity is healthy and is, is going to be good in the long term for companies who are able to differentiate. But I think there's going to be a lot of pain in the meantime. So we will continue to look good. Help, help me out here. Is all birds a commodity? I mean, obviously, or I mean, shoes, 
or, uh, uh, you know, suitcases or like, what is the difference between a differentiated product and, and a commodity with amazing uh, branding? So I say I would, I would absolutely not consider all beards a commodity. Maybe some people disagree with that, but I think they develop a product that, especially at the price that they're able to provide it, um, really no one else is able to provide. People are able to provide shoes, sure. But, you know, what Allbirds really is, is a materials company. Um, and that's sort of what, how they've differentiated their product. And that's resonated with a large number of consumers. And, you know, frankly, they've, you know, across our portfolio of DSC, they've been one of the more differentiated products from, from day one. And I think that's why they will continue to have um, a way to stand out in the market. You're always going to be a Dollar Shave Club. Like, how, uh, where'd you put Dollar Shave Club in there or Harry's? I would not necessarily put Dollar Shave or Harry's as a differentiated product. What what I think the strength of you know Dollar Shave and Harry's were is when they launched and when they came into this market, they were able to get to significant scale um, rather than sort of having death by a thousand paper cuts where there are a million companies creating the exact same type of product. Similar to Warby, we'll call that like D to C 1.0, where they were able to create a compelling value product um, and get to scale um, significantly. And I think that's a great way for them to wedge into being a, 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 a big retail player. Now, that doesn't necessarily differentiate them long term, um, but they've built brands and they've gotten to critical mass. I think if you're starting a company today, uh, it would be very difficult to scale to the levels they're at without a differentiated product. Yeah. So, so l- l- talk about uh, 2.0, Henry, and then let's get to uh, Jeff and, and what you make of the DTC collapse. Um, so I think what we're seeing in 2.0 and, and where we've been focused over sort of like last 12 months or, um, or thereabouts is find people who are, you know, building uh, differentiated products and, you know, aren't wholly dependent on, you know, digital advertising. So, you know, over the last few months, we've made some investments in um, companies that have higher repeat purchasing. Um, I think that's another thing that sometimes gets lost in the sort of D to C doomsayer, um, you know, different products, different categories, different purchasing behaviors are huge huge differences um, in, in some of these categories. Just because two different companies are selling direct consumer doesn't mean the dynamics in these businesses are similar at all. So we've made investments in a few beverage companies in the last year, companies like Recess um, in the you know, CBD space, um, which is you know more dependent on third-party distribution as most of beverages. Uh, companies like House, H-A-U-S, in the low ABV alcohol space, where they're coming into new categories um, within beverage that you know today don't really exist, and you know are um, are both creating you know delighting customers with a different offering versus legacy and incumbent brands, um, and they're using different distribution methods than just raising gobs of venture capital in order to scale top line. So I think that you're going to see success stories, um, and in some ways you know, the limitations of, of less venture capital pouring in to acquire customers is probably going to be a good thing for these brands, you know, partially because, uh, you know, there will be fewer competitors, there will be, you know, you don't sort of have this arms race where people are just bidding against each other for the same customers. And, you know, we're, we're we continue to be excited by brands that are able to figure out novel ways to do that. And, you know, really the art and science of making sure you have a product that people want, before you, you know, just immediately start scaling, which I think, you know, a big problem with a lot of these D2C brands that have gotten upside down is raising too much capital too soon. 
uh, and sort of putting your foot on the gas on growth before really deciding whether or not your product is different and really valued and wanted in the market. And, and, and last question, and then we'll move to Jeff. How are you evaluating that? What, what are the metrics or criteria by which you're, you're determining whether a D2C uh, company makes sense for you uh, concretely? So I think at the earliest stage, I think one of the problems that too many investors make is, is looking at it as um, you know, more the science in that early stage. So we're focused on seed. Um, for us, you know, house is a perfect example. You know, their metrics when we when we invested there basically were at launch. We often invest sort of pre-launch or right around launch. You know, if you were looking strictly by revenue, that's probably not an investment you're going to make. What what got us excited there was it was a, you know, sort of a unique opportunity with Wooden and Woody and Helena, um, who were, you know, both able to create this product that very few people can create. A, you know, Woody comes from a, a long line of winemakers owns a vineyard um, and was able to sort of have this control over product and this real like natural, authentic, you know, these two were almost uniquely situated to create this company. And for us, that was, you know, the trend towards low ABV, um, people who want to be social, but aren't really met by the needs of traditional liquor companies. Um, To us, that is a massive opportunity um, and we thought this was the team who was uniquely suited to build that. Um, you know, still early days there. I think the mistake a lot of a lot of early stage investors make is being too focused on revenue in the early days as the sole determinant of what will be a massive consumer hit. And I think for us, you know, we we have um, probably realigned even more so to focus. Um, even, you know, focus deeply on product um, in markets that we think have explosive potential and go there very early um, when they're sort of still developing their overall strategy for how they become a you know, billion dollar brand. Awesome. Uh, Jeff, uh, w- w- let's get to you. How do you make sense of the D2C collapse and, and what are you likely to invest in in, in the D2C space in, in the future? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so I think, um, you know, Henry kind of mentioned the, biggest thing I'd look for is purchase frequency and de-risking the business model. And with that comes um, my natural inclination towards subscription products. And so the things that I look at and have invested in all have some membership component. And so, you know, of my recent investments in DTC, um, Sunday is doing subscription lawn care. Misfits Market is um, subscription in perfect produce. Public Goods is like Costco for millennials. Um, but these are all membership-based D2C products that have recurring revenue. They also happen to be brands that are uniquely focused on segments outside of uh, Silicon Valley. And so, you know, I think the depth of every D2C product is launching in San Francisco. I'm sure there's examples that prove that wrong. But, you know, I, anytime I get a pitch and the, the entrepreneur's um, distribution is to tech people in San Francisco, I immediately cringe. And so, you know, taking Sunday as an example, uh, subscription lawn care, there aren't, uh, their target audience is, is the lawn owner in Houston, Texas. It's not someone who lives in, in the mission. And I say that as a former mission resident. So um, I, I love San Francisco, but it's just not the place you want to launch consumer products. And so um, I also look a lot at, at people who are targeting unique verticals um, that are just unexpected. So one recent example is Figs, who's um, making really stylish, um, comfortable OR scrubs for medical professionals 
and is is really being aggressive with outdoor advertising near hospitals and, and nursing facilities. Um, again, massive business that you just wouldn't think to build if you're creating something for tech people. So I'm, I'm looking for, for entrepreneurs who have really unique uh, viewpoints, life experiences, and um, are targeting people outside of, of San Francisco. Totally. Talk more about some of the things that you're excited right now, uh, Jeff. Uh, you mentioned your fun thesis is Seven Deadly Sins of the Future. Maybe we can get into that and then maybe some thoughts around social or audio or some of the other thesis you have. Uh, right. Yeah, sure. Um, so Sequoia famously a long time ago uh, had a thesis. It was the Seven Deadly Sins thesis, which is just um, most consumer products fit within those categories. And um, obviously the world's changing rapidly. And so I'm constantly asking myself, what are the new seven deadly sins? And with that, um, they're much more focused on, on wellness and health and less um, things that are, are harmful for you. And so a lot of the products I've invested in have a wellness component and um, I use wellness very broadly. So an example would be superhuman, which is um, I think a, a mental wellness product for four hours of your life where you're sitting in your inbox and you, uh, you feel, feel like you're in, you know, professional health, um, and, and superhuman makes that experience better. So I'm looking for, for software that actually has some wellness components where it makes you feel happier when you're using it. And I know that's, that's kind of, um, a broad thesis, but, but, um, you kind of just know it when you feel those products and, and that's kind of what I'm looking for. When you talk about, uh, your hundred fans thesis, yeah, so it's actually not my uh, thesis. It's Andrew Snorowitz Lee, um, who I've, I've talked to extensively about this, has a thesis that, you know, with the rise of influencers and, and the ability to monetize your audiences directly, the idea used to be that if you could just attract a thousand fans and monetize them, you could actually have a very successful uh, business and be kind of a, a solo entrepreneur. And now that we have super fans and we have more engagement tools than ever, her point was that if you could just monetize a hundred fans at a high price point, you can actually, that that's all it takes to kind of run a, a solo business. And um, I think there's a lot of truth in that. And so her, her challenge was to figure out if you can build a business or um, create a niche for yourself as a influencer um, where a hundred, only a hundred fans are willing to pay for your product or your content. Um, and see if you can build a business off of that. So I think um, in, a, in, a, in a long tail world of many interests, um, she's looking for businesses that help creators of, of all kinds just monetize kind of your, your whales, like the people who are really um, in love with your content and applying kind of everything we know from gaming and dating to, um, to kind of like consumer businesses. So say more about where you're excited right now in social, uh, or you, you have the, everything will become social thesis. You, you mentioned dogs, baby, weed, uh, on, on, <laughs> uh, social unexpected places. Why don't you unpack some of these? Yeah. So dogs, babies, and weed was actually Henry. And I think that's why we're on this podcast today. Cause I mentioned <laughs> it last time I was here, but, um, you know, like those three categories are just Henry tweeted about, and they just really stand out as, as kind of within like the product zeitgeist fit of, of 2020. Um, you know, we're all, and maybe it's an age thing. Like I'm, I'm 35 years old now and all my friends are having babies. So it's just kind of like in my world, but, but we are all addicted to our dogs and our babies. And, um, a lot of people love, <laughs> love, uh, having access to, to weed. And Especially so, um, get older. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so, um, that was just kind of a, 
three categories that um, that I've been looking at. I know Henry has. And then, you know, in terms of what I'm what I'm really excited about and um, kind of the everything will become social thesis was looking for business businesses that create social products in unexpected places. So, you know, the the older examples of Venmo, like who would have ever thought that payments would be social and you could have uh, build a social graph on top of of payments. And then um, a more recent example, and this was in Andreessen Horowitz investment is SnackPass. And so college kids use SnackPass to order ahead. And every time you order, you get um, points, which you can actually give to your friends. And um, there's also this really cool component within the product where you and a specific friend can build basically a Tamagotchi together that you have to keep alive. And um, you do that by giving each other points. And so who would have ever thought that, you know, like uh, a food ordering product would have a Tamagotchi within it and it would be targeted towards college kids. It's just um, trying to create these fun social interactions within payments and everything that that you would traditionally think of as being kind of a a private um, activity. Jeff, one question I have for you, and I'm sure, I mean, I think a lot of investors, especially in, in technology, think about this all the time, but you know, you look back over the last 10 years and so many of the massive, um, you know, sort of world changing businesses were really based on some type of a platform shift. I know you've focused a lot in areas like audio. And I remember hearing you talk about, you know, Apple Watch as a platform and, and sort of looking for that next platform. You know, it seems like a lot of people are constantly searching for that platform. Obviously, there hasn't been anything as tectonic as the mobile phone. Uh, or smartphone in recent years, you know, how, how, how much is your sort of investment thesis focused on sort of those platform shifts? And, you know, what do you think the largest platform shifts that are going to allow massive, you know, consumer applications of the next decade look like? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think those tweets are kind of honestly me just digging for uh, people who are interested or doing cool things in the space. I think as a consumer investor, you have to kind of hang out on the fringes of what um, is mainstream consumer. And so uh, for me, it became an obsession with Apple Watch and biometric data and, um, you know, reading every Apple patent filing and talking to, um, you know, like researchers who are in the audio space, um, specifically people who are focused more on, on biometric data. And um, it got me it got me pretty deep within that world. And then, you know, in terms of, of, of kind of like platform shifts, I think we're all hoping for a platform shift um, and we were hoping for that with crypto and we were hoping for that with audio and we still are the truth is as um, an investment category if you're running a new fund like myself uh, you should only be allocating a small percentage of your fund to those categories i i think if you want to have you know a good shot at, at returning your fund and yep. i'm sure there's many examples of like early crypto funds that suggest otherwise but we're all just kind of digging. I think I'm still really interested in in kind of consume, consumer 2.0 or social 2.0. And um, I kind of think of, of every social app as being like a restaurant. And, you know, restaurants can become uncool over time. So if you think of, of Facebook as being like the McDonald's of social, not everyone wants to eat at McDonald's and not everyone likes kind of fast food. And so what can you build that has kind of a different flavor or a different taste that people might be interested in? and um, you know, the truth is like every social product eventually becomes less cool over time as the network grows. And so um, you, you see people building smaller um, kind of private communities and focusing on kind of this this move towards smaller 
networks and, and I think those are interesting. The the trick there is, you know, we've seen this with like Raya and dating. Um, the more the more you grow, uh, the less cool the network becomes. And that's just a sad truth of, of consumer. And so if you're trying to build like the Soho house of of dating, it becomes really challenging to um, maintain that that vibe as you as you grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I uh, I agree. I mean, that's somewhat at odds, obviously, with with investor uh, appetite. You know, people want these massive networks that you know have a true network effect versus a you know highly fragmented system. But I think it's I think what you're saying is true. I think that's hard for a lot of investors to sort of wrap their heads around and and understand what maybe a more fragmented social uh, landscape will look like. Yeah, and it's it's funny. Like if you go up to um, and you spend time with firms, I think everyone's just kind of um, waiting and kind of at a loss of for what to do in consumer. And so you see a lot of firms spending time in in gaming and and you know the gaming being the new social layer thesis is is playing out. But that requires gaming as an investor requires a very um, specific background as an investor and and kind of similar to crypto. It's very hard to do something like gaming part time and actually have an edge. And so um, some funds are actually hiring folks from gaming to become partners and, and kind of fill that role within their within their firms rather than having like a, a general generalist like myself make those bets. Right. I think one area that that we're certainly focused on nowadays within within the consumer realm. And um, I think a lot of firms are um, as they sort of wait to sort of, you know, see how that next sort of platform shift. Um, and all the you know potential consumer applications that come from it um, are regulated industries. Um, you know areas like healthcare, areas like fintech, areas like education, uh, and I think there's a lot of opportunities in all of those fields. Granted, you know heavily regulated, um, you know can be can be difficult to get you know early traction, and 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 often in in all those industries, it's not a pure play consumer, but it's sort of a you know B two B to C. Um, approach, uh, particularly in healthcare, but you know we've spent a good amount of time and have a, a decent amount of portfolio companies, companies like Maven Clinic, um, you know, offering benefits to female employees and sort of focused on prenatal care and prenatal benefits. You know, uh, companies like Verta Health, um, you know, offering tools to diabetes patients and sort of work uh, working with them through every step of their treatment to help improve outcomes. Um, we think there's a ton of opportunity. Um, obviously, you know, every investor, I think, sees the the rising cost of healthcare and um, and sort of the inefficient ways that, that care is delivered today. We think that consumer angle, whether it's direct consumer or sort of B2B2C, um, has some major opportunities. And, and those are some of the areas where we've been spending a lot of our time as uh, as we sort of wait to see what the next platform shift will be. Henry, I'm curious, what do you think of... Um psychedelics and um, kind of what becomes like the next iteration of, of cannabis within um, investing, because I think everyone's kind of looking for like the next unlock of, of whatever, um, whatever, you know, what, what, what would that be in your mind? You know, that's, that's hard to say. I mean, I think, uh, I think so many people are trying to push to the forefront of what comes next because they see areas like, like THC or, or CBD become you know, effectively commoditized very quickly. And, you know, it's, it's hard to get super excited about someone starting a, another cannabis brand today when, you know, the market's already more than saturated. Um, it's really hard to see how one can have a distribution model that 
that is going to you know lead to a, a larger expected return. You know, we've done, as I mentioned, company like Recess or we've made uh, an investment in a uh, in a THC brand. You know, for us, it's it's difficult. I, I I don't have enough of a feel on the industry to you know know where things are going. I think you're going to see a lot of people you know make bets and test different different areas, but. I just don't have enough of a feel of of where the world's going, and and frankly, I'm not sure that's a direction our firm's going to go. Just because I think it's 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 both unpredictable, and it's uh, you know even in CBD, you're seeing a huge holdup on national distribution based on federal regulation. Um, I think there's just a, a ceiling to how big um, a lot of these companies can become until there's more clarity at the federal level, um, and I think that makes it really hard for investors who have a you know seven to 10 year sort of shelf life as a firm to make investments today. I'm sure there's a moment where, you know, it's, uh, I think we're sort of in a traffic disillusionment right now in a, in a lot of cannabis as, um, as you know, money started to fall, the initial hype has, has fallen. I think there's still going to be a, a huge amount of money made. I think we just need more clarity at a federal level before you're going to see a lot of big institutional money um, sort of re-energized in the space. So, I don't know if that answers the question, but it, I just really it does. Yeah. Feel. One interesting thing is is just seeing. Um, so, like when cannabis became invest, investable, um, seeing which firms made those bets and and seeing their a lot of them just said, "Hey, we can't legally do this because of our LP structures," and and then you you kind of saw more people get um, get permissions or approvals to invest in the category. So it's just it's funny seeing the chain reaction of like one firm says like we'll do this and then suddenly like everybody piles in um but it always takes one or two firms um taking that leap to to kind of create that wave totally henry why don't you talk a little bit more about how you're thinking about consumer and regulated markets or or more broadly where you're where you're excited to invest and look now sorry i know i mentioned healthcare um earlier as an area that we're excited about you know everything from mental health we recently made an, uh, uh, an investment in a uh, in a company that's sort of helping the uh, patient or consumer, you know, in their lifetime follow along with with addiction treatment. I think there are, you know, an unlimited number of opportunities to just make patient care outcomes better at a high level. And, and to step back for a second, because we invest across both consumer and enterprise or B two B. And last year was actually the first year we invested more in B2B than we did in consumer in, I think, four years. You know, we look at the areas of the economy where costs are growing fastest relative to GDP, where you get education, healthcare, you know, housing and construction costs. Um, and so those are areas that we're particularly focused on. And I think healthcare is, is one where we see just so many opportunities to improve the experience. Um, and even a you know small improvement in outcomes is such a massive amount of savings. Um, I think you see a lot of large companies, whether it's insurers, payers, providers, who are so interested in opportunities here. I think um, that's part of what has us really excited. Um, so you know, healthcare has always been sort of a focus, um, and I think nowadays more than ever, you're seeing this sort of telemedicine, you know, gold rush. You're seeing verticalized telemedicine in all different areas. Obviously there's the the hymns and the Romans of the world that have that have become very large, you know, sort of consumer um, healthcare 
companies and, and probably the most high profile um, in the last few years. Um, I think those have sort of shown what's possible. So, you know, we're spending a lot of time in those spaces. We're also spending time in education. We just had a company, Course Hero, who's, who's sort of been under the radar for, for years um, and really built a, just a great subscription business um, in course guides, outlines, study notes, syllabuses, you know, just past $100 million in revenues, super capital efficient. Um, and I think that's, you know, goes to show the, the size of some of these spaces, um, whether it's education, healthcare, or wherever, um, if you're able to provide a service um, that is additive, even in a relatively small uh, way, relative to the overall sort of industry, you know, there's just unlimited opportunities to, to build companies that are doing tens or hundreds of millions in revenue. Um, so we're spending a lot of time just meeting entrepreneurs, trying to see where, you know, I think especially at Seed, um, we, we come in with themes and ideas of what we think is interesting. Um, the most interesting companies um, that we meet with often are, are, are sharing or explaining to us concepts that we haven't really conceived of or finding markets or niches in markets, maybe not niches, but narrow, narrow opportunities within large markets that, that they think can be explosive. So that's where we've been spending a lot of our time. And I think there's going to be a lot of huge outcomes uh, in some of those areas in the next decade. Yeah. Companies are trying to be like Warby Parker for X. What are sectors that or even some within healthcare trying to be like Hims for X? What are sectors where the, that Warby for X model is is more likely to work versus, versus not or, or subcategories? Like what, are the, what are the criteria of a subcategory that would lend itself to work to that model? So are you saying like Hims for X? Is that is that the question? Or, or? Warby Parker for X. Warby Parker for X. I guess are you talking within healthcare? I guess I got a little confused. Oh no, no, no. I'm talking within DTC more broadly. Oh, um, do you see more broadly? So, you know, I wouldn't say that's a, a huge focus for us at this point, as I sort of talked about those, you know, whether you want to call them D2C 2.0 or 3.0, you know, I hear all different nomenclature all the time. You know, as I mentioned, the, the, the consumer companies that we've backed in the last year, um, and I think Jeff touched on this as well, but, you know, repeat purchase rate, um, you know, more high velocity purchasing behavior, I think, is something that we're focused on as well as, you know, different distribution strategy than, than strictly online. So another company, and I think it's super under the radar, and I think a lot of the big consumer product companies are going to be more under the radar businesses, you know, not raising huge gobs of capital. It's a company like Verb Energy. We invested in this company about two years ago. You know, they've grown hugely, relatively quietly. They sell um, they sell online through a subscription, um, but also sell into offices. And what Verb Energy is, it's basically a 90 calorie bar that has green tea energy, um, sort of a coffee replacement. And this team has grown super efficiently, you know, has only raised a couple million dollars doing double digit millions in revenue. I think you're going to see a lot of success stories with companies like that um, versus you know, the, the, the D to C sort of 1.0 or 2.0 companies that we're trying to take on uh, entire industries and raising hundreds of millions of dollars. I think you can, you can find companies that can grow within the confines of call it a more narrow opportunity, um, but a lot more efficiently. But maybe Glossier is, is better sort of analog than, than Warby in terms of building a you know massive content arm and I guess, you know, there was a, a moment where we thought we were really going to fuse content and commerce 
for a long time, like product hunt thought they were going to do it, you know, uh, Buzzfeed, uh, you know, there, there were just, all, you know, chat bots. I, I, it's just interesting to think we haven't seen that to the extent that we, we thought we would, and maybe we will in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think it works in certain categories, but I think one of the things that I think I learned from the, the sort of D to C movement that, that got a little bit overheated over the last few years is, you know, not every product category is something that consumers are necessarily super excited about. I mean, you know, we've seen, I've seen D to C pitches in so many categories that, I just stop and I think who has an emotional connection with, you know, their toilet paper or, you know, areas where we've just sort of gone overboard in, in trying to force an angle that isn't really there on a consumer. And it, and it, I think becomes, I think it hurts consumers because I think consumers just become exhausted and being inundated with brands trying to uh, use a similar typeface and sort of convince them that there's status in, in, in this brand and that brand. I think it works in, in areas, obviously cosmetics, beauty, I think is a, is an area where that's vital and needed, but I think, I think we just saw sort of too much exuberance as if every brand was going to be, um, or every product category was going to have a brand that resonated with consumers. I think there are some spaces where a product that's good enough is, is good enough and people don't really, you know, care so long as it's safe and it works. Um, so I think we're going to see the water level come back to, really where consumers care um, versus, you know, trying to solve problems that don't exist. On, on that topic too, Henry and I have talked um, just through Twitter DMs about companies that try and force the subscription model to create that recurring revenue when it's really not in line with consumer purchasing habits. And that's when you have heavy churn, when you have shipments arriving to your door and, and you just aren't using the products. And so I look a lot for products where the subscription actually makes sense for the cadence that people consume the products. So like in the toilet paper example, if you're sending toilet paper every every week, like maybe that's too much and um, maybe it works for your business model, but it doesn't work for the consumer. So there's um, a really important um, you know, line to, to draw there. Why do you guys talk about where you're excited within consumer fintech? Sure. I think Henry and I um, have talked about kind of the future of neobanks. And, you know, for a while, I think towards the end of last year, 2019, um, a lot of investors were not, they, they weren't bullish on, on neobanks and they were, uh, you know, they thought there were too many neobanks in the world. I think there were a couple of examples of, of folks having trouble fundraising, but towards the, the start of this year, it seems like everyone's very excited about, about, neobanks again and um you know i think the the criticism is obviously the customer acquisition costs and also the fact that um a lot of these products are just stitching together apis that are you know using products like plaid that that aren't truly they don't own the full stack of the banking experience but but i'm just seeing a lot of energy in 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 the space right now and I'm, i'm excited to see where it goes because i think um in a lot of ways if you can find the right audience, find the right brand, and build a really simple product. It, it kind of reminds me of, of some elements of the good parts of D2C, which is creating emotional products that people love and creating um, uh, a sense of community around banking, which um, you know I think we can all agree didn't, didn't previously exist. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, some of our investments we're most excited about in, in consumer fintech are, are companies like Acorns or Petal, which are you know, really focused on serving, um, you know, consumers who were previously not 
well provided for by large financial institutions. So I think part of what's exciting about neobanks and, and new consumer fintech applications is, is providing for consumers who have been sort of left behind by legacy financial services. But I think, you know, just like we're seeing in, in, in sort of D2C consumer products, I think the, the pause that, that a lot of investors have felt across areas in consumer across the board is just, you know, what, what are outcomes going to look like for, for these large consumer fintech companies that have raised money at, at high prices that have grown revenue to a, to a really high number? You know, we haven't ever really seen a large financial, financial institution acquire a, a consumer venture backed business at a, at a large, at a high level. Um, you know, the chimes, the Robin hoods, you know, they've, they've grown top line. We don't have too much clarity on, on what the underlying business looks like. At least I don't. Um, so I think that's where a lot of these pauses and, and sort of, um, concern in consumer investing comes from is just, you know, what are these exits going to look like and who are the acquirers or are all these companies effectively going to have to be public companies if they really want to get liquidity at those levels? Totally. I, I think that's a, that's a good place to, to wrap. Uh, my guests today have been Jeff Morris uh, of uh, Chapter One and uh, Lambda and Henry McNamara of Great Oaks. Uh, Henry, Jeff, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us, Eric. Thank you. Happy birthday, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.